All right, well, good morning once again. Good to see you all. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12? This morning we want to read verses 43 through 45, where Jesus said, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. But then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So it shall also be with this wicked generation. Very interesting uh, passage here. Uh, some ways both concerning and confusing. And you're never going to really understand this passage if you take it as a standalone teaching. You need to see it in its context, because when you do, all of a sudden it makes sense. It's really the conclusion of a confrontation that Jesus had with the scribes and Pharisees. A confrontation that really got started back in verse 22. Let me read it. Then one was brought to him, to Jesus, who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute. And he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? In other words, could this be the Messiah? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, Satan, the ruler of the demons. Now Jesus responded by rebutting the logic that Satan would do anything to undermine and destroy his own kingdom. I mean, if Satan had worked so hard to work in a guy's life to to lead him down the path of occultism and paganism so much so that he opened himself up to demonic possession so that Satan came in then, one of his demons, and now is really controlling this guy. Why would the devil let him loose? Why would the devil use anyone to release those in bondage that Satan has put in bondage in the first place? She said, that doesn't make sense, okay? And from there, the Lord began to teach that a good tree is known by the good fruit it produces, whereas a bad tree is known by the bad fruit that it produces. He went on to say the same is true with the human heart. And since the scribes and Pharisees only produce bad fruit, in other words, their lives were full of hypocrisy, were full of uh, selfishness, they spoke lies and untruths constantly, that's what came out of their mouths. Uh, here they were opposing the very Son of God who came down from heaven calling him Satan. I mean, these guys were, the fruit was bad all over the place. It proved that their hearts were bad, in other words, unredeemed, and that they were children of the devil and not really children of God. Now, that's the context. And so now when you come to verses 43 to 45, Jesus seems to be expanding on that teaching with a section that is dealing with the danger, listen, of reformation that stops short of regeneration. Let me explain. Even though inwardly the scribes and Pharisees were unredeemed, or in other words, unregenerated in their hearts, outwardly their lives seemed righteous and holy. Now in Matthew 23, Jesus Christ is going to pick up on this. And he's going to compare them to whitewashed tombs. We talked about this last week. Whitewashed tombs. Tombs that were whitewashed on the outside so that pilgrims could see them from a distance and not inadvertently stumble upon them and defile themselves as they were coming to observe the Passover or one of the other major Jewish feasts of the year. But of course, inside they were full of dead men's bones, uh, defilement, decay, and so on. And Jesus would go on to blast the scribes and Pharisees eight times in Matthew 23. And one of the denunciations was, you're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside you appear all holy and righteous, but inside you're full of all kinds of hypocrisy and iniquity and defilement. 
But what Jesus is acknowledging here is that often a person can reform or clean up their life by going to church, we'll say, hanging out with Christians, right? Staying away from the things of the world. When they do that, what happens is, as they were, say, in the world, uh, doing the things of the world, hanging out with worldly people who were just encouraging each other to get into more and more sin and rebellion against God. As they did that, of course, it allowed the demonic activity in their lives to be escalated. You know, you don't have to be full-blown demonically possessed to be heavily oppressed and controlled by the devil. The more a person opens the door to the devil in whatever thing that they're involved in, the more the devil begins to take control and the, the more his demons are able to then influence that person to do greater acts of rebellion against God. And so when a person begins then to come, we'll say, to a Christian church, a good church that teaches the Bible, a church filled with the Spirit, and begins to hang out with other believers, begins to hear the teaching of the Word, well, it begins to influence them for good. You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, that evil company can corrupt moral living. Well, by the same token, good company can drive out immoral living. However, the danger of religious reformation, which stops short of true regeneration, is that, listen, it gives people a false sense of being right with God. It gives them the impression that they have a relationship with God simply because they're going to church. Look at me. I've never been to church in my life. I'm going to church now. I'm hanging out with Christians. I've been reading the Bible. And I'm staying away from the alcohol, the drugs, and the pornography, and all kinds of things. Right? You know, and, and here they are. Their lives are really changing for the better, right? But if it doesn't go all the way into full regeneration, in other words, salvation, it gives them the impression, the delusion really, that they have a relationship with God when in fact they do not. It can be very deceptive and therefore very dangerous. In fact, author and pastor J. Vernon McGee picked up on this and said, and I quote, in other words, reformation is no good. He said, my friend, you can quit doing many things, but that won't make you a Christian. If everyone in the world quit sinning right now, there wouldn't be any more Christians in the next minute or in the next day because quitting sin doesn't make a Christian. Reformation is not what we need, end quote. No, what we need or what a person needs is repentance, first of all. Repentance comes from two Greek words that literally mean to have a change of mind. In other words, at one point you recognize that your life is being lived in rebellion against God, contrary to what God has said in His Word. You're going in the wrong direction, basically. And repentance is basically turning around, having a change of mind, that I need to stop going away from God, and I need to start moving toward God. Of course, that is then followed quickly by receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, the master of your life, which then brings regeneration or salvation. See, that's a very important point, isn't it? And there's a lot of people in our culture who I think have recognized that their lives have been lived in such a way that they've made a mess out of everything. Every relationship they've ever had, they've destroyed somehow with a wife or multiple wives, children, a family, maybe they're alcoholics or drug addicts. And at one point, you know, things can only get so bad before you, even unbelievers wake up and go, what am I doing? And so they begin to turn. And maybe they come to church. 
And maybe they hang out with you folks. You're spirit-filled believers. You love the Lord. You, you exude the, the love of the Lord. You, you, you radiate Jesus. You, you're in the Word. You quote the Word. You live by the Word. And here they are. They come to church. And they start hanging out with you guys. And, and boy, they see the difference in your life. And, and your marriages are together. And your walk, life seems to be together. And, and they, they pick it up on that stuff, right? And so they begin to move away from the old relationships, the old buddies that they used to drink with or take drugs with. They come to church. They get into the Bible. Their lives begin to change. That's wonderful. It's not enough. You've got to take it to the next step and receive Christ. Because if you don't, you get stuck in that Reformation period. I've got a relationship with God. Why? I'm not drinking anymore. I'm not taking the drugs. I'm not running around. I'm not, you know, And that's great, but it's not enough. Um, I was in the car just the other day, and I was listening to Caleb. We all like Caleb, right? I mean, it's a great station, and God bless those folks. I mean, uh, people are ministered to by the music and all. And often they will have uh, throughout the day little testimonies of people who have been blessed or who have gotten uh, saved by listening to Caleb. And this is not about putting Caleb down. Don't get me wrong, okay? But here's what I heard one gentleman say. And I think this feeds into what uh, we're talking about. Uh, Here's his testimony. And I'm listening as a pastor, very interested. He said, I've never been a religious person, but my life was getting very, very empty. And so I, I happened to find Caleb one day on the radio, and I began to listen to some of the music. And it touched me. And I realized I needed to, to have God in my life. And so I did that, you know. And the next morning when I woke up, I just felt so at peace. Now, folks, this gentleman may in fact have received Christ, but I didn't hear any of that. I heard, I, I felt I had a need. I needed God. What does that mean? I, I needed to have God in my life. What exactly does that mean? And what God are you talking about, by the way? And the next morning I felt feelings of peace. Wonderful. The devil may have just counterfeited the path to righteousness by getting you to feel like something has happened with God, when in reality what you really need to do is understand it's not God generically that saves anybody. It's Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins on the third day rose again. And to receive him, you've got to repent. You've got to get on your knees. We well, you don't have to get on your knees, but you've got to repent, all right? You want to get on your knees, that's great. You can repent standing up if you want. But it's having a change of mind. I'm a sinner. I'm a rebel against the God of the universe. And the only way for me to change is to have Jesus in my heart to change from me from the inside out. So I need to acknowledge my sin, uh, acknowledge who He is. He is God Almighty in human form who died for my sins and rose again the third day. And now I'm not only believing in Him, I am turning control of my life over to Him. I heard a lot about feelings and generic God titles and this and that. And I'm thinking, you know, this is the culture we're living in. And so often when people, when God begins to work and begins to show people that, you know, they're going in the wrong direction, then Christian ministries oftentimes don't do them any favors by letting them talk in generic terms. And Christians will even reinforce that. Isn't that wonderful? He found God. I don't know what he found. He might have found God or a God or some God. I don't know what's going on. I know one thing. There's only one person that can save. And it's not God generically. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And you get saved because you believe who He is, what He did, 
and then you receive him as your Lord and Savior to take control of your life. See, Jesus went on to warn us what happens to the person that doesn't go all the way, that stops short, that kind of hangs out in that Reformation period where, you know, things are changing. They've stopped doing some of the old sins, but they don't go all the way now to receiving Christ as their true Lord and Savior. He said in verse 43, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, the demon says to himself, I will return to my house from which I came. What's he talking about? He's talking about the heart of the person he left or was driven out of. I'm going to return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. What's the key word there? Empty. Empty. First of all, understand this. In the Jewish culture, they believed that demons hung out in desert places. That's why he says this demon went through dry places seeking rest and finding them. That was just the, the Jews understood that demons kind of hung out in desert places. But they also understood that demons, because they are disembodied spirits, want to inhabit someone or something. They'll even inhabit animals. Remember when they said, let us go into the herd of swine, okay? And they ran down the hill and were drowned in the Sea of Galilee. This time of year, near Halloween, you see a lot of the evil stuff and you see the Wiccans with the, uh, we'll say the black cat. Of course, the whole idea behind a black cat, witches would have their familiar spirits inhabit uh, these cats or other animals. The demons have inhabited uh, animals for, well, since the dawn of time. And when they're not inhabiting animals or people that have opened themselves up to demonic oppression or even possession, uh, it seems that they are restless looking for someone or something to inhabit. Now, Jesus said, apparently this demon was hanging out in the guy who was very sinful. I'm going to just put it in our vernacular, or our context. The guy starts going to church, a good church, you know, maybe this church. And he starts hanging out with you folks who love the Lord. Your lives are full of the Spirit. You love the Word of God. You talk about the Lord. You talk about the Word. You get them interested in the Word. They begin to read it. And it begins to drive out a lot of these evil influences that they had opened themselves up to. But this demon, although it's been driven out, is going to return. See, Jesus said, and here's the thing you want to see. The demon says, I'm going to return to the house, the heart, the, the person from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it what? He finds what? The heart of this individual. He finds it swept, put in order, but what? Empty. That's the key word. In other words, you can sweep the house of your heart clean from some sin through reformation. But a clean house is not enough. Again, listen to what J. Vernon McGee said. He said, the hardest people in the world to reach for Christ are unsaved church members because they think that they're all right. In other words, they have a relationship with God. They have undergone self-reformation. Their lives have been swept clean and put in order by religion. But they are like a vacant house. And all the evil spirits have to do is move back in. The devil owns them still. They don't know that. They don't recognize that fact. Reformation is deceptive. Reformation, he said, means death and destruction, where regeneration, true salvation, means life and liberty, end quote. And I'll add to that with what author and Pastor Warren Worsby said. He said, and I quote, It's not enough to clean house. We must also invite in the right tenant. Amen. The Pharisees were proud of their clean houses, quote unquote, but their hearts were empty. Mere religion or reformation will not save. There must be regeneration. 
the receiving of Christ into their heart, end quote. You know, and you have to turn there, but in Revelation 3.20, Jesus speaks to a church, the church of Laodicea, that had religion and reformation. In other words, the house of their church was clean, swept, and put in order, and yet, folks, listen, it was still empty. And you see Jesus saying that with this church, he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in. So he's standing at the door of a church or even an individual heart, a place where there is religion, some reformation. In other words, they've cleaned up their lives somewhat. But yet the Lord is knocking on the outside to get in. So a lot of churches who do a lot of good things in the community, a lot of good things to help people. But Jesus Christ is really not living in that church. Here was the thing, though. This church had deceived itself into thinking that they were right with God because they had probably some community works they were involved in, but they were also a very prosperous church, very wealthy. And so these things deceived them into thinking they had a relationship with God when in fact Jesus said, you think you're wealthy, but you're really blind and poor and wretched and naked and miserable. See, religion blinds to your true self. It inoculates you to the real righteousness. And that's why Jesus said, and notice he said to this church and to any individual, Behold, I stand at the door. What door? The door of what? Your heart, right? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He didn't say, Behold, I stand at the door and kick it open. He doesn't barge in. You have to let him in. You know, there was an English artist years ago named Holman Hunt who attempted to capture this scene on canvas. You can actually Google Holman Hunt and uh, you will see the painting. I did that. Uh, The painting right now hangs in St. Paul's Cathedral in London, very famous painting. And uh, Holman Hunt tried to capture this scene out of Revelation 3.20. He pictured Jesus standing at the door of a neglected cottage, knocking to be let in. Well, when he first painted the picture, uh, he invited some of his artist friends to come over and take a look at it and critique it a little bit. So he had it there on a a stand in, in his house, and they came over and were looking at it and all, and studying it, until one of them says, Holman, you've made a terrible mistake. And Hunt said, what do you mean? The door, Holman. You've left something very important off the door. He said, what are you talking about? The handle, Holman. You left the handle off the door. Ah, Mr. Hunt replied, this door is a picture of the human heart, and the handle of the door is only on the inside, for it is up to the one within to respond to the knock of Jesus. You see, Jesus will not force his way into anyone's heart. He won't barge in where he's not welcome. He's a perfect gentleman who knocks and says, basically, if you will respond to me and open the door of your heart to me, I'll come in. I'll dwell with you. I'll be with you and fellowship with you. But the choice is up to you. Now, once again, let me just say there is a danger of someone cleaning up their life a little through religion and yet stopping short of inviting Jesus to come in and live there. See, if Jesus, through the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit, is not living in their hearts, I don't care how religious they are, like the scribes and Pharisees. Their heart is susceptible to being filled with other spirits, evil spirits. You see, the real problem with Reformation is that the thrill and novelty of going to church and hanging out with Christian people eventually wears off. When that happens, the unregenerate person goes back to the old life because they are not a new creation in Christ. But the end result is they wind up being much worse off than before. 
Now, I just talked to somebody at the first service who said that he know, she knew a guy, married to a friend of hers, and this guy was living a pretty bad life, but then he got, you know, his wife got saved and started taking him to church, dragging him to church probably. And he started hanging around with Christians and he got all fired up, okay, all excited. So all of a sudden now, boy, you know, he, and he, he claims to have received Christ and he's teaching in the Sunday school program and this and that, and all of a sudden he's not interested anymore. And she showed me a picture of him on his Facebook. He took a picture of himself on his way out to some kind of a vampire party or a walking dead party with uh, red paint over his mouth and face, you know. And, and you could see in his eyes, his eyes looked dead. And she was saying, you know, what you were teaching is, is absolutely true. He's much worse off now than in what he was before he even came to church. See, that's what happens. See, that, that's the problem. When a person comes to church... See, they're unsaved. But they, they realize something's not, their life is not right. I mean, it's a mess. So maybe they know somebody who's a Christian. Maybe they're married to a Christian. Come to church. They start hanging out with Christians. Start hearing the message. Start reading the Bible. They begin to change. But at one point, they decide, you know, this isn't for me. And they walk away. See, whereas before they started coming to church, they had cracked the door of their life or the door of their heart this wide to let the devil come in and control and influence once you come to church and hear the truth, and now you reject the truth, with knowledge comes responsibility. Now you, you open the door this wide and say basically to Satan, come on in. Because that's what happens when you know the truth now and you willfully turn away from it. And that's what Jesus went on to warn about in verse 45. He said, And then the Spirit goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there in that person's heart. And listen, the last state of that man is worse than the first. You know, Peter echoed this very same thought in 2 Peter 2. Why don't you turn there? I'm going to show you this. Peter is really talking about the very same thing. In fact, he might even have what Jesus said in Matthew 12 in mind when he wrote this. Listen to what Peter said in verse 20. 2 Peter 2, starting in verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is they? Some people say, well, the they is Christians who backslide. No, I'm sorry. No, the context doesn't permit that. He's talking about the very kind of folks we've just been talking about. Unbelievers who decide they need God in their lives, come to church, hear the word, understand the truth, and then walk away. If they escape the pollutions of the world while they're in this reformation stage, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in these things of the world and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb. Now, this is the key to understanding this section. Listen to what Peter said. He's quoting a proverb. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit and a sow or a pig, having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Now look, how do we know Peter isn't talking about a backslidden Christian who loses their salvation? I don't believe the Bible teaches a Christian can lose their salvation. But how do we know that that's not what he's got in mind here? Because he quotes Proverbs and talks about a dog returning to its vomit and a pig, after having been washed, returns to the mud hole. Look, 
when a dog or basically any animal eats something that is bad, makes it sick, the body wants to expel it, right? I mean, anything that you ingest that is unhealthy, that's going to make you really ill, the body wants to purge it, wants to make you vomit it out. Now, as human beings, we vomit something out that's making us sick. We pretty much leave it at that. But a dog goes over and begins to re-ingest the very thing that made it sick in the first place, right? Just like when something evil is expelled from a human being. And yet they wind up going back and ingesting the same evil that once caused them to be poisoned in their hearts. Or what about a pig? All right. I mean, we don't live on farms, but, you know, I've seen farm shows uh, where, you know, pigs by nature love to roll around in mud pits. You can take one of those pigs and you could, you know, bring it into the front yard of your home and wash it down with the hose and take, you know, some of the soap and scrub it clean and maybe even throw a little cologne out. I don't know why you do that, but you can do that. Bring it into the house and make a pet out of it. But I'll tell you what. If you leave the door open one day, it's going to want to run right out back into the mud hole. What's the point, Pastor? What, do you, what, is, what are you saying? What is Peter saying? Peter is saying the reason a dog returns to its own vomit or a pig after having been washed to its swallowing in the mire is because it is the nature of dogs to do these things and for pigs to do these things. It's their nature. You can clean up a pig. It's not going to change its nature. The reason people who come to church for a while and stop doing some of the sinful things that they were doing but eventually return back to the filth of the world is because, listen, it is still in their nature to do that. They may have been in church for a while, just like a washed pig can stay in your house for a while, but their nature is for the world still. That's their home. That's where they feel comfortable. And although they've been reformed a little bit by going to church and hanging out with you folks, Their nature is still of the world. They still want to go back to the world and will eventually, exposing their true colors, exposing their true heart condition. These people experienced some reformation, but it stopped short of genuine salvation, listen, which would have given them a new nature with new desires, right? Hey, look, when we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Bible says at that moment we received a new nature. Okay, old things passed away, all things became new, right? Now, look it, I know I speak for all of you here who are Christians. Uh, and I'll just use myself as an example. Before I got saved, there were times when I went to church and, and you know, and hung out with decent folks. And, and when I did, of course, I tried to be like them and, and do right things. But even though I went to church at times, I didn't really enjoy going to church. I was out of my element, you might say. All right? And although I felt good about what I had done, I kind of felt good about myself. When I left church, I did my duty. I didn't look forward to going to church. We can all attest to that, right? When we accepted Christ into our hearts, we received a new nature. The Bible says old things passed away, all things became new. And the evidence of this began to show up immediately. We didn't know what was going on in our hearts, but suddenly something began to happen. The things that we used to love to do, and it was sin, obviously, but you fill in the blank. If you were out there before you got saved, you were out partying and drinking and carousing and stealing and whatever it was. All the things that just were, you did by nature. Suddenly you don't want to do those things anymore. And all the things you never really wanted to do. If you're like me, of course, you know, I'm talking for myself. Go to church, read the Bible, go to prayer meetings, worship services, hang out with Christians. 
when you get saved, those are the very things you love to do. A lot of times unbelievers say, yeah, I don't want to be a Christian, but you guys can't have any fun. Yeah, you can't go out drinking and party. You've got to go to church all the time. Look, man, you don't understand. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to go to church. I get to go to church because I've got a new nature. I don't have to stop drinking. I don't want to stop drinking. I mean, excuse me. <laughs> Can we edit that out? Uh, some psychologist is going to hear that and go, ah, this guy, see, a little slip. Uh, no. You know, we don't want to do those things anymore. God's changed us from the inside. We have a new nature. The evidence is that Jesus has moved in is the idea. He's moved in. Now listen to me as we kind of shift gears a little bit and kind of wind down. Just as these things apply to individuals, listen to me, they can also apply to nations. And that's why Jesus ended with verse 45. If they talked about, you know, Spirit brings back seven other evil spirits more wicked than itself and enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. He says, so shall it also be with this wicked what? Generation. Let me explain how this applied to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel had been purged of demon idolatry which had plagued the people of God all throughout the Old Testament period. God cleansed the nation of their propensity towards idolatry during the Babylonian captivity. Remember, part of the reason they went into the Babylonian captivity was because they were such a wicked nation. While they were in Babylon, now away from their land, God was able to do a work in their hearts. And they were purged of all the demonic idolatry that had plagued them for so many years. When they finally returned from Babylon back to Israel, the scriptures record they never again worship Baal or Ashtoreth or any of, demo- any of the other demonic entities that they used to worship before the captivity. So now the nation was reformed. The evil spirits had been driven out. But they were in a very critical place. The nation was clean and swept, put in order, but it was empty. And now here's Jesus presenting himself to the leaders of the nation, primarily the scribes and Pharisees, saying, look, reformation is good. You think because... The nation's no longer into idolatry. You're right with God. You're not right with God yet. You've got to take it to the next level now and receive me as your Savior. Because the nation might be clean, swept, and put in order, but it's still empty. You need to fill your nation with me now. Did they do that? No, they rejected him. And the result was destruction. Because in 70 AD, the Romans came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, And the Jews were scattered throughout the world. Look, Reformation can cleanse. It can't fill. The nation of Israel should have received the Savior and been filled with the Spirit. If they had, it would have changed the entire way they lived and thought and so on. And Jesus here is indicting this wicked generation saying, and I'm going to paraphrase, although you might have cleansed yourself from idolatry that once plagued your country and have had Reformation, you haven't experienced regeneration. Although you've swept your nation clean of idols, seven times as many demons will flood into you because you are rejecting me. You know, the classic example for me uh, of this whole idea, Reformation that stopped short of real regeneration, uh, was what many call the revival that took place during the days of King Josiah in the Old Testament. But upon further examination... It stopped short of being a true revival and fell into the category of a time of national 
reformation instead. See, true revival touches the heart and leads to true repentance. True repentance leads to genuine change. A change from a life of sin to a life of holiness and obedience to God. Under Josiah, the nation entered a time when religion suddenly became fashionable, you might say. And going to temple, we would say going to church, became suddenly cool or hip. You can read about this in 2 Kings 23. What happened? Well, you have to understand something. For 57 years before Josiah, the nation was ruled for 55 of those years by Manasseh, one of the most wicked kings in Israel's history. You talk about demonic worship. He even sacrificed children to the god Molech, burning them alive. That's how bad the nation had gotten under him. We think near the end of his life he had gotten saved. Praise God for his grace, right? There's hope for all of us if Manasseh can get saved. But Manasseh had not used the temple in 55 years. His son who took over reigned two years, neither did he. The temple of God sat dormant. Nobody used it. It was a, become a giant storage shed for all kinds of trash. When Josiah took the throne, he decided, you know, we need to start worshiping God again. Josiah was a godly young guy. And so he paid some people to go in and begin to clean out the temple. Well, in the process, Shaphan the scribe and Hilkiah the priest, lo and behold, amidst all the garbage they were digging out from the temple, found a copy of God's word, the law. They had never seen the law before. Never read it. They brought it to Josiah. He reads it, tears his clothes. He said, uh-oh, we're in big trouble. Because everything God said we were not to do, we're doing. And so that launched a wave of reformation where Josiah had the temple completely refurbished. It was finally opened again after almost, it was over 60 years by this time. All of a sudden now, a generation that has never really worshipped God Almighty, the God of Israel, never really been in the temple, all of a sudden here's this new temple where the worship of God becomes kind of fashionable now, and it, it's kind of hip now to, to go to temple. That's something we've never done before. This is kind of neat. Problem is, as they were going to temple, they hadn't really turned away from worshiping false gods either. The problem was it was only an emotional response that didn't touch the heart, and therefore, listen, did not change their lives. The people experienced some outward reformation, but it didn't lead to any inward regeneration or salvation. How do we know? Because God sent the prophet Jeremiah down to the temple to speak to the people who were going in. And this is what God told Jeremiah to say. I'm going to read it to you out of the New Living Translation. It comes through a little clearer. Uh, it's out of Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 2 to 11, if you want to write it down. Here's what God told Jeremiah to go. Here's all these people going to temple. Oh, they're all excited. Oh, this is cool, right? This is neat, you know? Here's what God told Jeremiah to tell these folks. He said, O Judah, listen to the message from the Lord. Listen to it, all you who worship here. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Even now, if you quit your evil ways. See, the people hadn't turned away from their idolatry. But they were still going to temple now. Even if you quit your evil ways, I will let you stay in your own land. Because the Babylonians, this is now, this is before, I talked about the Babylonian captivity. This is actually right before it. When God was trying to get them to really repent so he wouldn't have to carry them away to Babylon. Jeremiah was pleading with them to make some real changes. He said, look, don't be fooled. If you quit your evil ways, I'll let you stay in your land. But don't be fooled by those who promise you safety simply because the Lord's temple is here. They chant, the Lord's temple is here, the Lord's temple is here. 
But I will be merciful only if you stop your evil thoughts and deeds and start treating each other with justice. Only if you stop exploiting foreigners, orphans, and widows. Only if you stop your murdering. And only if you stop harming yourselves by worshiping idols. You see, they were about ready to reap the judgment of God. In fact, prophets like Jeremiah were telling the people, you've got to repent. This reformation is, is deluding you. It's, it's making you think that you have a relationship with God, but you have not fully repented. Listen to what they were still into. Evil thoughts and practices, demonic idolatry. They were oppressing the orphans, the widows, the strangers. All the things God had forbidden. All the things that would never happen in a society where there was true repentance. And yet the people felt very secure. Even though guys like Jeremiah were screaming, don't listen to those who say God will never judge you guys. His temple is here. You're deceiving yourselves. God said, you need to repent in truth. Then, verse 7, I will let you stay in this land that I gave to your ancestors to keep forever. Don't be fooled into thinking that you will never suffer because the temple is here. It's a lie. Do you really think you can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, and burn incense to Baal and all those other new gods of yours? And then come here and stand before me in my temple and chant, we are safe? Only to go right back to all those evil things again? Don't you yourselves admit that this temple which bears my name has become a den of thieves? Surely I see all the evil going on there. I, the Lord, have spoken it. God says, what, you think because you're going to church that you're fooling me? I know what's in your heart. You come to church on Sunday, you sing me a few songs, you act all holy and righteous, you go out and you begin to rip people off again, live in immorality, uh, think evil thoughts, etc. God says, I'm not fooled. He's not fooled by us individually. He's not fooled by us nationally. Look, people who try to clean up their lives or their communities through Reformation might sweep the house clean, but seven times as many demons will come back. The evil that follows will be greater than the initial evil unless there is rebirth, unless they are truly saved. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, Do you really think we're going to stop drug abuse by trying to eradicate the fields of coca in South America? Do you really feel that militarily or politically or through slogans like just say no, we're going to rid ourselves of cocaine nationally? We tried in prohibition. We swept it clean. We said, we'll close down the distilleries. We'll board up the breweries. We'll change this country through legislation. But you know what followed? For a while, alcoholism seemed to ebb. But in its place came cocaine and heroin, seven times the greater evil, end quote. You know, our founding fathers believed that not only individuals answered to God, but also nations. On the floor of the Constitutional Convention in 1787, they explained the difference between individual accountability to God and national accountability to God. They said an individual answers to God in the future, because we're all going to stand before the Lord someday on the day of judgment. The individual answers to God in the future, but not a nation. When a nation dies, it is forever dead. It will not be resurrected in the future to answer for what it has done. Therefore, when does God judge a nation? Well, George Mason, the father of the Bill of Rights, explained, he said, as nations cannot be rewarded or punished in the next world, so they must be in this. By an inevitable chain of causes and effects, providence punishes national sins by national calamities, end quote. Folks, as we sit here today, there is a storm out east 
which the meteorologists are calling a superstorm. It is the ability to kill hundreds of people. Pray for the folks on the East Coast. We are seeing an escalation in natural disasters hitting our country. In fact, there are scriptures that we quoted after Katrina, where God said he would use the whirlwind to bring judgment upon, upon nations for their sins. We have seen an escalation not only in natural disasters, but couple that with economic crises, outbreaks of certain diseases. Uh, you start putting all these things together and you realize that God is trying to get our attention and he will do it through natural disasters. He'll do it through economic crisis. He will do it through a lot of different things because he's trying to wake a nation up. He's trying to wake our nation up. We are a country that's turned its back on God. We were a nation founded by God, a nation that honored God, loved his word, followed his word, and God had driven out all the evil spirits from our nation. I'm not saying we were perfect. Don't get me wrong. But we were a light to the rest of the world. But then America began to turn its back on God. We knew the truth. We knew better. We were a nation under God. We knew better. Yet people in this country began to think, it wasn't God. God doesn't even exist. Hey, we built this nation. We deserve the credit. And so as the nation has turned its back on God, more and more God is turning his back on the nation. And he still loves us. He's trying to get our attention through natural disasters, economic crises, and so on. But the time has come for us to really wake up as a nation. Or we're going to follow in the same footsteps of Israel and wind up being destroyed. Thomas Jefferson said, and I quote, Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. End quote. This is one of the most chilling quotes I've ever read about our nation. The great 19th century statesman and politician Daniel Webster gave us a solemn warning when he said, and I quote, If we and our posterity shall be true to the Christian religion, if we and they shall live always in the fear of God and shall respect his commandments, uh, we may have the highest hopes of the future fortunes of our country. But if we or our posterity neglect religious instruction and authority, violate the rules of eternal justice, trifle with the injunctions of morality, and recklessly destroy the political constitution which holds us together, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us that shall bury all our glory in profound obscurity. End quote. That ought to send chills up your spine. Because I think we are right there. So is there any hope for America? You might be thinking, well, what if God has already pronounced judgment upon this nation? I'll give you two more quotes from the Word. Two more scriptures. Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8. God says, the, listen to the grace of our God. God said, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil... I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. Wow. And then he said in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, that is why the Lord says, Turn to me now while there's still time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothes in grief, but tear your hearts instead. Repent. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. 
He is eager to relent and not punish. Who knows? Perhaps he will give you a reprieve, sending you a blessing instead of this curse. On Tuesday, November 6th, our nation will elect a new president. I hear a lot of people saying, we need a change. I don't hear many saying, we need to change. I believe that as a nation, what we really need more than a change in leadership is a change of heart. We need our hearts to change. It's true this country desperately needs a change in direction, but a directional change away from sin and back to God. In other words, we need national repentance, but remember one thing, guys. Nations can't repent. Only people can repent. Therefore, if you're talking about national repentance, we need what we're saying is people nationally all over this country repenting of their sins and getting their lives right with God. That is the only hope for our nation. Revival. And that always starts with us. And with this true story. You've heard me say it before. Years ago there was a man. His name was Gypsy Smith. He was a revivalist. He was a preacher of righteousness. He went all over the world preaching to people about Jesus Christ. And the need for people to repent and get their lives right with God. And everywhere he went, God blessed his ministry and revival broke out. He was speaking somewhere in our nation years ago. After a series of uh, lectures on revival, a delegation of people from a city, oh, I think it was probably several hundred miles away, made the trip just to see this man of God. And afterwards they said, Mr. Smith, we need revival in our community, in our city. What can we do to bring it about? He said, I'll tell you exactly what you need to do to bring it about. He said, each of you go home to your house, go into your bedroom, take a piece of chalk and draw a circle on the floor. Kneel in that circle and pray fervently and honestly to God and say, God, send revival to this circle. And if you all did that, revival would begin to take hold in your city. May God give us the grace to do that very thing, to go home and examine our own hearts, to seek him earnestly, to pray fervently, to repent of our sins and ask God for mercy. We deserve judgment. I pray God will be merciful and send a revival and a great awakening instead. Who knows? Maybe he will relent of the judgment he intends to bring and leave a blessing behind. I pray that's the case. Father, we thank you that you are a merciful and long-suffering God. Father, forgive us as a nation. We are deserving of judgment. We have turned our backs on you. We know better. We were a light to this world for many years. A nation founded under God. No nation in the history of the world has ever had your word in such abundance as we have had as a nation. We know the truth. And yet, Lord, we have turned from that truth. And seven times the evil has flooded in upon us. We see the drug abuse. We see the sexual perversion everywhere. We have filled the earth with pornography. We are killing children in their mother's womb at a record rate, 60 million since 1963. God, we are so deserving of judgment, but we plead for mercy. We ask for revival, Lord. And may it begin right here in this room, right here in our own individual hearts. Father, we, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.